I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, The True and False Self. All of us claim to believe certain things about God, but many of us struggle to actually trust the things we say we believe. What can an oscillating life of failure and success, sin and faithfulness demonstrate about what it means to really know God? The young man, let's call him Michael, had a tragic backstory, and everyone knew it. He talked about it all the time. It poured out of him like a leak. He wore it like a badge of honor, his willingness to tell it, to own it. And all his spiritual woes and shortcomings, he braided into the tragic backstory, a work in progress, this guy. And didn't we know it? Because he said it all the time. And I was impressed. I told someone as much. A pastor I knew had dedicated hours, days, years to walking with Michael through hardship. Isn't it inspiring? I said. How vulnerable Michael is. How refreshingly transparent. And this older mentor and friend sighed and said, he's not. Not really. The tragic backstory, it seemed, had become a protective bubble. It was an affectation. Michael, the pastor told me, is afraid to do the very difficult work before him. And he had, in essence, dressed himself for a job he was not prepared to begin, like a man circling the raw foundation of a house to be built, tools in hand, day after day, talking about the work, the house that will one day rise in this very spot, but never lifting a hammer to build it. How strange, I said. Because Michael had described to me in detail his predicament and the work of healing before him. Yeah, he knows all that, the older pastor told me. He has all the right information. He knows how to articulate all of it. He knows it's true, even. But on some level, he doesn't believe it yet. And I remember lowering my eyebrows and looking at the ground, lost in thought. How does one believe what they already know if they don't already? Or put another way, how does one trust what they already believe? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. What if you say you believe something? What if you believe you believe something? But then there are moments Days, entire seasons of life in which you don't trust the thing you believe. It's almost as if there are two of you at war within, the true and false self, something the New Testament details at length. This week is the second in a new series before us. We are going to talk about failure and disbelief and betrayal and tragedy and boredom and the quest to trust what you already believe. Let's read from Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's one of Jesus' favorite names for himself, the Son of Man. The disciples replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus, in the story, asks his disciples point blank over and against the rest of the world, who do you say I am? And realize 
how much hangs on this moment. After years with Jesus, at this point in the story, they've seen him do incredible things. They've heard his teaching day in and day out. They've learned his way of life. They're tracking with some of his inferences and missing others altogether, but they're with him. They follow him. And he's not once, up to this point, asked them for an honest confession of who they believe him to be, to really be. And then the day comes. Who does the world say I am? Oh, well, they have lots of crazy ideas. Apparently, a lot of people think you're someone who's dead. That's strange. But who do you say I am? What about you, my faithful apprentices, the people who have been with me every day? Who do you say I am? And the way he asks them is intense. Scholars point out that Jesus used something called a living historical present tense, which is just a fancy way of saying that Matthew, the author of this biography of Jesus, is emphasizing this question. It's like he's underlining it, italicizing it. You, who do you say I am? Because on this answer hangs everything. So in verse 16, Peter answers. And what he says is beautiful. Simon Peter says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter's declaration is simple. It's boldly decisive. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Says one commentator, It is where this confession is gladly believed with the heart, and so confessed with the mouth that a church arises and lives. You, Jesus, you are the anointed king, God's promised anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah. One scholar I read translated Peter's confession into modern English this way. You are the answer. You are the point. You are the last word, the meaning. You are it. Peter, at this point in the story, has come to an important the important understanding about Jesus, but he does not understand all of it. Not yet, anyway. But even so, Jesus celebrates his friend. Verse 17, Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In his commentary on this passage, scholar R.T. France writes, The gates thus represent the imprisoning power of death. Death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. The imagery is of death being unable to swallow up the new community which Jesus is building. It will never be destroyed. Peter knows who Jesus is, really is. He says so, and Jesus says he's right. But then the story goes on. Turn just a few chapters to the right to Matthew chapter 26. Now, at this point in the story, I realize this is familiar to a lot of you, but bear with me. Peter's friend, Jesus, the master, the rabbi, the one he's been following around, the one that Peter recognized as the long-awaited hope of Israel and of the whole world, now he's been arrested. And before Peter's eyes, he's being mocked and beaten and abused. It looks really bad. He's being treated as a lowly criminal declared worthy of execution. People are mumbling about where are his followers, like they want to get them to. And then in this tragic, hopeless scene, someone comes to Peter, who has at this point abandoned Jesus, run from the arrest. And once again, they ask they ask if Peter knows who Jesus is. Were you with him? Look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus. 
of Galilee, she said. But Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now notice the language. First, Peter was in the courtyard, and then he went out to the gateway. Peter is both literally and figuratively moving further away from Jesus. And that's not a coincidence. Matthew, the author, is using his artistic literary voice to paint a full picture of compromised discipleship. And don't miss the other subtlety. The second girl claims that Peter was with Jesus. He was but is no longer. Matthew, again, is highlighting the bitterness of Peter's unraveling. He is no longer with Jesus. Verse 72, Peter denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Peter won't even say his master's name. I don't know the man, as if Jesus were a stranger. And in this, his lie becomes an ironic truth. Peter no longer knows who Jesus is. Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Of this scene, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner argues, this can only mean that Peter really no longer believes in God. And that is, in fact, the deepest source of all denials. We no longer believe that there is such a being. If Peter now had a shred of faith in a living God who honors truth and punishes falsehood, he would not have dared pray to God's judgment on a liar. See, belief in the scriptures, in the Bible, is never about intellectual acceptance. In our culture, uh, belief is a question that we ask about God and aliens and Santa Claus, and by it, we mean that we do or do not accept in our minds that something exists. But belief in the Bible is something much more. It is evidenced by actions and words and lifestyle that correspond with intellectual acceptance and trusting with hearts and lives what we hold to be true in our minds. And as Matthew conducts this awful symphony to crescendo, he breaks the reader's heart with the abrupt punchline that concludes verse 74. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Peter often exemplifies the paradox of our brokenness and our sanctification. He is both a hero in the gospel stories and he is the fool. Jesus bestows upon Peter the honor of being called the rock on which Jesus will build his church. Only one other man in history has the honor of being called the rock. (laughs) Arguably as important as Peter, in a different way. In a very different way. His contribution is different. (laughs) I hear Peter's laugh. Thank you for, yeah, I appreciate that. Jesus bestows upon Peter that honor. I'm going to use you to build the entire Jesus movement. And then he did it. Here we are. Peter's confession of Jesus as king is our confession tonight, following in the footsteps of the earliest of the church fathers and mothers and the earliest disciples of Jesus. Jesus did build his church on Peter's confession. But if you know the other stories about Peter, Jesus also rebuked Peter 
by calling him Satan, which is never great to hear from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. In that story, Peter was more concerned about the things of man than with the things of God. And sadly, we have all of us at times in our discipleship followed Peter in that heritage as well, more concerned about the things of man than the things of God. This is the tragedy of our cycles of integration, being formed into the image of Jesus, and disintegration, being formed over into the false self. So Peter failed, but his story went on. Now turn to the right in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 21. John chapter 21, stay with me. We're going somewhere. At this point in the story, Jesus has been executed as an enemy of the state, humiliating when he died. All of the disciples' hopes and dreams died with him. The disciples have all abandoned Jesus, been dispersed. The movement is over. The king is dead. That's it. And here we find Peter, John 21, verse 2. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. It's a really funny sounding line, so abrupt and candid. But in context, these lines are utterly heartbreaking. Peter was going to be the rock on which Jesus built his movement, the kingdom of God. He said that death would not overcome it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. But at this point in the story, Jesus is dead. Peter, who promised to die before he would abandon Jesus, has utterly comprehensively failed his master and his friend. Not only did Peter leave Jesus, he denied knowing him, called down curses on him, betrayed him, denounced him. Jesus died, and with him the hopes of Israel, the hopes of the disciples, the hopes of Peter. And so after years of wandering ancient Palestine with this incredible, enigmatic, controversial, mesmerizing rabbi on whom all his hope and belief was rested, everything had broken down. And Peter, defeated, goes back to doing the thing he had done before he took up with Jesus, fishing. Imagine the overwhelming despair he might have felt returning to the shore, to the boats, for the first time without Jesus. It was on the shore and in the boats that Jesus had first come to Peter. And I wonder if everything that morning reminded him of his fallen master. Did stepping into the boat, not to follow the Lord, but to fish, the very trade from which Jesus had called him away. Did all of that emphasize the great collapse of all he held dear? Jesus had promised to make Peter a fisher of people, but here he is, returned to his nets just like before. No king, no kingdom, only fish. And then the rest of verse 3 goes on. That night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, I'm assuming a little bitterly, No. I've been fishing all night, catching nothing. He said to them, Cast the the net on the right side of the boat. You will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. 
Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's uh, the author's humble way of referring to himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Of all the incredible, visceral reactions to the presence of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, this one is my favorite. Peter's shameless, unpretentious, childlike joy and wonder. He hears his friend say, it's him. And he just immediately jumps in the water. He doesn't say, it's him. Well, then let's row the boat to shore right away. Without a word, he just jumps in. There's no cowering or shame or skepticism. He doesn't even squint at the shore and ask, are you sure? He hears, wait a minute, that's Jesus, and jumps in the water. Jesus makes a fire on the beach, and they have breakfast together. And then skip down to verse 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wish. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Three times Peter denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus restores the failed disciple by covering over his betrayal with a declaration of love. And in the wake of Peter's restoration on that beach, Jesus looks into the possibilities of Peter's yet-to-be-settled timeline, and just as he had anticipated Peter's failure that night, on this new morning, he anticipates what will become of Peter's faithfulness. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. This, to me, is one of the most haunting yet beautiful things Jesus ever says to anyone in his life. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, but when you are old, someone else is going to dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. We know from early church writings that Peter, like Jesus, was crucified by Rome. But unlike Jesus, Peter was hung head down on the cross at his own request. Jerome, a fourth century priest, wrote this, At Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head toward the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. I imagine Peter 
and the horror of his own execution as he's about to be nailed to a cross to die saying, no, not like Jesus, I am not worthy. The disciple who once denied Jesus, the disciple who once sank in the turbulent sea when his fear was greater than his faith, now asked to be hung upside down because he is unworthy to die like Jesus. Not, please, no, not, don't hurt me, but don't hang me like him. I don't deserve the honor of dying like him. What changed in Peter? As he suffered just before he died, was there some sense of joy that warmed him, knowing that just as he had been restored in life, he was now restored in death? His allegiance now tested again and found uncompromising, just as he had once promised his Lord around that somber dinner table years before at Passover, he was now willing to go to death for his king. But before all that, before he became a martyr, before he instituted the cross of St. Peter, before then, Peter denied knowing Jesus at all. And in those days of his lingering failure before he was restored on that beach, Peter did what many of us have done, what many of us do. There was a time when Peter left everything he knew behind for the unknowable adventure of following Jesus, a time when he promised faithfulness unto death. But when the great failure came, when the great hopes for the future concluded in a cross, Peter returned to the thing that he trusted before fishing. Like unfaithful spouses hell-bent on the arms of former lovers, we return to that which we know, the old routine, the familiar trust structure. And wondrously, it's there that the gracious king seeks and finds the tragic failure, the classic fool, back in his fishing boat. And he has to call him to faithfulness again, the same way he called him the first time. Jesus comes to Peter, not the other way around, because God is the initiator. God seeks. God is the one who knocks on the blackened, rotting doors of our shut-up hearts, rust shaking from the hinges. Even in our failure, he seeks. Even in our betrayal, he returns to us, and he calls us again and again. But long after the door is open, we find no painless road for the righteous, this side of the resurrection anyway. Instead, even as we grow and learn and mature, even as we purge sin and are made over into the image of Jesus, we will yet fail from integrated to disintegrated to integrated again, slowly taking on new and better shapes, purging the old ways, the old us, but stumbling and falling again in the process. Jesus promised that Peter would be the rock, and he was. He betrayed Jesus and was restored by the grace of Jesus. Peter witnessed the Spirit of God poured out on the disciples at Pentecost, something that the Jewish people had been waiting for for centuries, and he was forever changed. In Acts 10, Peter receives a vision from Jesus and becomes the beginnings of the gospel going out to not only the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. Peter was the beginnings of the gospel going out to all people, the rock on which Jesus would build the church. But then, much later, 
In Paul's letter to a church in Galatia, we read that this happened. This is like reading, well, I guess it is actually reading someone else's mail. Let's eavesdrop on their conversation. Paul writes, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish tradition? Peter was the one who began the mission to the Gentiles. Restored, redeemed, empowered, commissioned by God, and now rebuked for his sin, apparently in front of everyone, by a man who until recently had been killing Christians. Writer Brennan Manning once said, there's this naive idea that once I accept Jesus as saving Lord, my life is going to be an unbroken upward spiral toward holiness, this untarnished success story. Once we accept Jesus as saving Lord, then nothing's ever going to go wrong. And it's almost like being a patient etherized on the table. The simple truth is that after three years with Jesus, Peter denied him. After receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, Peter was still jealous of the apostolic success of Paul. For all of us, there are gaps, gaps between what we believe and how much we trust what we believe. And three things in particular have a unique power to expose those gaps between what we believe and whether or not we actually trust what we claim to believe. Crisis, boredom, and time. Crisis, the lost job, the shattered dream, the bankruptcy, the affair, the divorce, the death in the family, the terminal illness, the car crash, the miscarriage. But it's not just the shock of tragedy, it's also the lull of boredom, the moments or entire seasons of nothing. And when you find yourself asking, is this really it? The, the giving over to spiritual drought, the deafening quiet, the lulling into simple routines and rhythms that become numbness. And both of those things, the crisis, the boredom, the, they unspool often slowly across the great mocking parade of time that changes us without asking whether or not we would like to be changed at all. And what was once imbued with fiery passion smolders and becomes cold. And what once satisfied leaves us in want. And the old rhythms fail to shake us from the crisis or the boredom, and we're no longer sure what we believe or who we are if we don't believe it. Crisis, boredom, and time, all three scratch open the hidden reserve of what we trust and what we believe. The crisis boils our true trust to the surface, and we tend to rush or retreat to what we truly trust to give us comfort or solace or peace. Boredom drudges those secret trusts up, and time wears away the veneer of pretense until the truth is naked and raw, worn on the unornamented sleeve of our lives. On that beach 
of restoration. All those years ago, as Peter sat with the risen Jesus, as Jesus thrice asked, do you love me more than these? I wonder if Peter knew what he meant by these. Some scholars speculate it may have been the other disciples, but other scholars believe that Jesus was talking about fish. Do you love me, in other words, more than this? The boat, the nets, these fish, this thing that you've trusted for most of your life, the thing to which you returned in crisis and boredom, your plan, your safe space, your trust structure, which do you love more? Because even without crisis or boredom, even now in the present, you probably know where the gap is in your own life. Where is it? Do you sing words that you, in your heart, do not trust? His communion, the bread and the cup, a dead museum, an empty ritual. Do you want, on some level, to trust that God's vision for humanity is best, but you find yourself leaning toward, reaching for, wanting the pervading cultural narratives to be truer, the ones that synchronize with your socio-political preferences and social media feeds? Peter, disintegrated, integrated, disintegrated. He was faithful, then failed, faithful, then failed. And so the, the legacy of the apostle Peter is neither sin nor righteousness, per se. It's neither failure nor success. Peter's legacy is grace, that he wandered and Jesus came and found him, that he believed but did not trust his belief, and Jesus came to him again and again. And the Peter who learned this across the uneven and often painful crags of life and discipleship would later go on to write these words, above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Who knew that better than him? To come and follow Jesus to keep following Jesus. The invitation is neither to unbroken faithfulness nor unfaltering apprenticeship, but to learn to truly trust that, like Peter, you are the beloved of God. Right now, as you sit with all your garbage and failure, with or without the great victories of your life, you are the beloved. And to trust that his love can and will swallow up even your failure in glory. That if Jesus called Peter, Peter who walked on and sank in the turbulent sea, who obeyed and then disobeyed, who promised Jesus his life, then on the same night denied Jesus his heart. Peter, who integrated then disintegrated, who began the mission to the Gentiles, then was rebuked by Paul for getting it wrong. Peter, who was so afraid to die with Jesus that he denied knowing him at all, and later became the Peter who, in death, would not be hung on the cross upright, for he said he was unworthy to die like his Lord. So great was his faithfulness. Jesus called, pursued, forgave, redeemed, and restored the Peter who had failed and would fail again. 
Did he not call you? And will he not pursue, forgive, redeem, and restore you and me? My prayer for our church, beginning tonight and across the coming weeks of this series, is that we will begin to do an ongoing work of learning to accept something that many of us already believe is true, but have yet to trust in full, to trust a legacy of grace, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to come and speak and move and act. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church slash give.